Welcome to the New Books Network. So in the same way that Jesus said, I only do the things I see the Father doing, the church now is meant to live in the kingdom by saying, we do and say as the Spirit is moving through us. And that's what I think, Chris, is so profound about the kingdom of God. It's like a way of explaining Christian spirituality that's like complete, you know, mm-hmm. and holistic. It's not, but I have no problem with doctrine, obviously, but it's not mere doctrine. It's not mere dogma. Um, it's not mere right answer to a catechetical question. It's like a life. Yeah. Well, then if you say, well, what characterizes that life? It's the kingdom of God alive in us and through us. It's really magical. The kingdom of God is at hand. So why is it so hard to see it sometimes? Even in the church, sometimes especially in the church. Anglican Bishop Todd Hunter, author of What Jesus Intended, talks it over with me on Almost Good Catholics. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I answer every single email. Bishop Todd Hunter is an Anglican bishop in Franklin, Tennessee, where he founded the Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others. Today's episode of Almost Good Catholics will follow the example of the Nicene Creed, which has Catholic with a little c, referring to the universal church of Jesus Christ, not just the church of Rome. Bishop Hunter is married. Roman Catholic bishops obviously can't do that. And he and his wife, Debbie, have two kids, now grown. Bishop Hunter is past president of Alpha USA, former national director for the Association of Vineyard Churches. I used to attend a vineyard church in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the 2000s. My wife is a Protestant. And Bishop Hunter is also retired founding pastor of Holy Trinity Anglican Church in Costa Mesa, California. He's the author of several books, including Christianity Beyond Belief, Following Jesus for the Sake of Others, Giving Church Another Chance, The Outsider Interviews, The Accidental Anglican, Our Favorite Sins and Our Character at Work, and that's a great title, in my opinion, and his new book, the book we're talking about today, What Jesus Intended, Finding Faith in the Rubble of Bad Religion. So welcome, Your Grace, to Almost Good Catholics. Hey. Hi, Chris. Nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. I'm very honored. I'm very honored to meet you. Uh, Do you have a joke to get us started today? Well, you know, you can tell by the title of my book, uh, Finding True Faith in the Rubble of Bad Religion, that we're going to do a little perspective shifting in our conversation today, or at least that's what my book's trying to do. So how about a little joke that highlights the importance of perspective. Fire away. So some of your audience might have heard these dopey stories, you know, where you got four guys in a, a little airplane, but there's only three parachutes and the plane <laughs> starts crashing. Okay, this is one of those dopey stories. So four guys in an airplane. There's a young pilot who's about 35 years old, married, got kids at home. There's a guy who was reputed to be the smartest guy in the world. And I can't remember exactly what he did, but it was something like networking all the banking systems of the world together or something. And then there was this young boy, about 12, and then a very old, retired uh, clergy person, (laughs) old bishop. So you know how this stupid story goes. The plane starts crashing, four guys, only three parachutes. The the pilot grabs one of the parachutes and says, you know, it's really important that I live. I got little kids at home. If I die, my wife will kill me. So he grabs one of the parachutes and jumps. 
Smartest guy in the world says, oh, man, you know, I'm the smartest guy in the world. The whole global banking system, you know, dependent on me. So he grabs one of the parachutes and he jumps. Well, that just leaves one parachute <laughs> with the young boy and the old bishop. And the old bishop looks at the young boy and says, you know what, son? I really feel like I've lived a good life. I really feel like I've done what God's given me to do. You take that last parachute and jump. And the young boy looks at the old bishop and says, ah, relax, Reverend. The smartest guy in the world just jumped out with my backpack. <laughs> that's so, lovely yeah so see what you think is going on isn't yeah. always what's true and that's what we're going to get to today no excellent way to start um well first let me ask you about yourself you're an anglican bishop the church of england and you work here in tennessee and you write in your book about your experience with the jesus movement in the 1970s which i don't know too much about but i think of as an evangelical way with with hippie sensibilities but i think of anglicans as something very different as high church almost Catholic, except for Henry VIII's uh, divorce. And uh, the differences, um, and you can correct me here, please, is, are in transubstantiation, the ordination of women and gay people, uh, the marriage of priests, uh, but not gay marriage, I think. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, but otherwise, you know, in trappings and style, very, very Catholic. Um, so who are yeah. you? How, how'd you get to where you are? You wrote a book called The Accidental Anglican. Tell us about that accident. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a little bit like those kids books, Where's Waldo? Or a bit like, <laughs> a bit like Forrest Gump. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Southern California in what I would call like a, a really stereotypical 1960s liberal United Methodist Church. My family was kind of culturally Christian, but not, not you know, I think my mom had a sincere faith, but, you know, none of us kids did. And we just kind of went to church because we had to. Well, when I was in junior high and high school, the Jesus movement broke out at Calvary Chapel in Santa Ana, the city where I was born and raised. And some of your listeners will probably have seen the movie that came out this spring called The Jesus Movement. And that was my life. And so I came to faith in that movement when I was 19, uh, 1976. And um, and so I, I found myself as a leader in that movement kind of right away and started my first church church. Uh, 1979 when I was 23 years old and um, and was happily in that movement. And then there was a division between Calvary and Vineyard. And it's too long of a story, but I ended up in the Vineyard, not because I have any beef with Calvary Chapel, it was more relational reasons. But here's where this connects to your question, Chris. The founder of the Vineyard, John Wimber, um, happened to be really good friends with um, evangelical, charismatic Church of England people. And the vineyard movement that's now worldwide wouldn't have happened without the Church of England. They put John on the map. And really, the vineyard kind of followed the old colonial trail, you know, uh, to, um, to South Africa and Hong Kong and Australia and New Zealand. They really, really put us on the map. So as a very young man, um, really young, in my early to mid-20s, I was meeting all these really great people. Um, and the, probably two of the first books I ever put in my hand as a teenager would have been John Stott and Jim Packer, who were both evangelical Anglicans. So somewhere deep in the recesses of my mind and heart was that I was an affection for kind of the stereotype that probably doesn't exist. You know, as a teenager, for me, I think the ideal Christian was an Englishman uh, who was evangelical like Stott and Packer and a little bit charismatic. You know, um, that was kind of perfect. And then when I was president of Alpha, I met lots of evangelical kind of charismatic um, Episcopalians at the time. And so I, that affection um, got, um, 
somebody sparked that affection one day when they just asked me, um, do you think you could help us try to figure out how to make kind of kingdom-centered, spirit-filled Anglican churches on the West Coast? I thought, Chris, I was getting a consulting job. I never thought mm. in a million years I'd be an Anglican, much less an Anglican bishop. So that's the that's the that's the story of the accidental Anglican. Mm-hmm. Well, um, the book "What Jesus Intended: Finding True Faith in the Rubble of Bad Religion" is a is a wonderful diagnosis of all the problems that we all have as Roman Catholics, obviously, but every, you know all of, all the Christians. But before we ask what's wrong with our church, I'd like to yeah. ask you what's wrong with our world. The book you wrote is a conversation, a very honest mm-hmm. conversation. It's not some highfalutin theological uh, treatise. And like Jesus, you you tell stories to illustrate your points. But your stories mm-hmm. are not parables. They're examples of real people you've encountered and talked to over very honestly and, and sincerely about what's going on. So mm-hmm. I'd like to start with your student. Her name is Martina, a student of yours. She has the problem that we know from the book of Job. She's She's been saying her whole life, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But around her, all she sees is suffering and pain. And one day at the end of class, she asked you why, why a good and loving God allowed her grandmother's neighbor in Venezuela, a little five-year-old girl, to be kidnapped, uh, which reminded me of Al Pacino, who played Satan in The Devil's Advocates and mm-hmm. calls God an absentee landlord. You know, he's an yeah, absentee right, landlord. Yeah. So um, what did you tell Martina? What do you tell people like that in your flock who you who asked the same question? Yeah. Well, clearly for all of um, Christian history, and as you say, all the way back to Job, there's been this very difficult, often thought of as intellectual conundrum known um, most uh, sort of professionally as the Odyssey. Um, How do you explain suffering in light of a good and great God? And so, you know, that's been talked about for, for ages, but with Martina, and I think for the people I'm writing to in this book, Chris, this isn't a, this isn't an intellectual or philosophical exercise in theodicy. I could see her broken heart. I could see the kind of crushed faith, the confusion, the desire to believe in a good God, probably even a belief somewhere in her in a good God, but just failing to be able to reconcile how could this happen, you know, to my pious family who you know, likely were Catholics, um, you know, just happened to be on a Catholic podcast here. It's high, statistically highly probable that they were Roman Catholic. And so what I tried to, what I was trying to do with her is firstly to affirm the validity of her feelings, that you're not stupid, you're not ungodly, um, this is confusing, but you don't have to stop there. Um, and then I don't remember exactly what I said over the conversations that we had afterwards, but I probably at some point, because this is what I do, is got to notions of the kingdom of God, the rule and reigning of God that that is uh, that began to come in its final phase through Jesus and is now increasingly coming to its final phases uh, through the church, but that God in both his love and wisdom allows rival kingdoms. And that's what we can't understand. So kingdom, it's a Greek term, basileia, it means to rule or to reign. And that means that there are wicked powers. You know, Paul calls them principalities and powers. There's demons, there's forces of darkness, you know, all the things that the Bible talks about. It's precisely in God's love and wisdom that he allows that rival kingdom to 
um, to continue. And that, but that's what gives rise to sort of snarky things, like you said about, well, we have an absentee God, or we have a God who doesn't care, or we have a God who actually doesn't really exist. He's just in our minds. Or if he exists, he doesn't have enough power to stop this. Or if he has enough power, then he's evil for not stopping it. You know, we get into all that stuff. And I think I just tried to help her see that there is a many, many thousands of years of faithful people, back to the patriarchs at least, wrestling with God over this stuff. And, but always coming to the place, and this is the argument of my book, is that we come back to, to faith in God, connection in the church. Um, through looking at Jesus. In other words, we don't look, in my view, we don't best look through the church to Jesus. We look through Jesus to the church and to faith and to the practices of faith. So I'm sure something like that is how I tried to lead her back to something that felt kind of grounding and confident, even though it doesn't make the pain go away. And it may not make all the questionings around the Odyssey or why is there suffering mm -hmm. go away but at least it gives us a place to stand. Mm -hmm. Well, what you just said there, I think is um, central to, to your book that rather than looking through the church to Jesus, we look through Jesus to the church because yeah. we know that God has built, <laughs> has built with crooked timbers and broken tools. And uh, yeah. um, this is part of your diagnosis. You, you, you say on page 14 that you have, you've seen the making of the religious sausage, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, I, I forgot who says that Bismarck, somebody says like, I know yeah. like politics is, Make, you know, compromise and so on. And it's so painful when another scandal comes out and even more painful than, oh, here's a priest who hurt somebody or many yeah. people, but then that his superiors might, you know, shuffle him around from here to there. Right. And we wonder like what, not, not only the sin of the individual, but the failure of the institution to protect the vulnerable, you know, lambs in, in, in the flock. So yeah. would you, you've, I mean, this is not, this is everybody, you know, not, not just Catholics, not just yes, uh, everybody, everybody. Yes. Um, and I think probably all religions too. I just, mm -hmm. especially sensitive to my own um, new source. Would you diagnose the problem for us with the, um, the rubble of bad religion? Yeah. You know, if you think of Matthew 23, uh, it's often talked of as the woes where Jesus pronounces woes on the religious leaders Um that's what I have in mind with that phrase, bad religion, uh, not the L.A. 1980s rock band, <laughs> bad religion. But <laughs> what, I, what I mean by bad religion is religion gone wrong and not just gone wrong sort of intellectually or conceptually or theologically, but religion gone wrong in ways that harms human beings. And that thing that we feel. So, again, I bring this back to feelings because the 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 readers that I had in mind Chris as I was writing this book I wouldn't say oh these are people who no longer believe this or that that may be the case but mostly what I had in mind was these are readers who feel hurt by the church abandoned disillusioned um you know we all hear people say oh I'm just over church or you know I, I still want to be spiritual but I want anything to do with religion all that kind of stuff that's who I had in mind. And I think where they're being fair, Chris, to, to try to answer your question specifically about diagnosing the problem, it's fair, I think, for people to say, yeah, um, 
priests should not be, a Protestant or a Catholic priest should not be abusing children. And that just seems like such a low bar. <laughs> and when we can't even hit these low bars, or you think of all the evangelical scandals of the last decade or so, or all the way back to the televangelist scandals in the 80s. So this has been going on now for 40 or 50 years. And now with social media, everybody knows it. Everybody knows it quick. Everybody gets to comment on it. And I just want to say that's real. And we, we have to own that it's real, that there are millions of brokenhearted people who want to believe in God and they want to be in a community in which they could expect that the good would be routinely done and that they wouldn't have to feel unsafe in a religious community. It's really, it's really brokenhearted. But we own it, man. There's been so much bad stuff. And, you know, now you got this new documentary out. I hear about Hillsong. I haven't watched it. But, you know, that's more my evangelical charismatic world. You've got, you know, it seems like every month another big Christian leader falls somehow, you know, usually sexually or substance abuse or money or something. And I just want to say, Chris, dang, we own that. Yeah. And, and I think we're alive at a time where a part of the ministry is to um, minister to those sorts of people. You know, I, I never had this thought until just this moment, you're bringing something out in me, but you know, one of the people, one of the Jewish groups in Jesus's day was known as the Essene or sometimes the Qumran sect, because their sense was that the most faithful way to be Jewish was to flee culture, flee the world. So they went out and lived in these caves in the Qumran. So some of your listeners will say, oh, I know that name, Qumran. Oh, yeah, that's where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that community that kept those scrolls is the community that you might say were the brokenhearted religious of their day hmm. and just thought, this isn't working. We got to get out of here. We got to find some other way of doing this. So again, I understand that impulse. It, it doesn't actually work very good. It's not, it's not the most faithful way to be God's people because if we flee the world, we can't then be agents of healing and justice and salvation. We can't, you know, we can't do that. But all I'm saying, Chris, to our listeners today is this problem, it did not start with Roman Catholic priest scandals or evangelical megachurch scandals. Um, this has been a problem for a long, long time. How to stay engaged, hopefully, redemptively, you know, without compromise. But I'm just saying, man, the people who are calling this on this, calling us on this, we just have to say, yeah, hmm. it, it's it's true. It's sad. It's horrible. It's not right. It, you know, it's not the way things are supposed to be. And we're about the business of repenting, changing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so maybe part of it is that we are, we do have this mass culture where you can hear a scandal here and there and far away and mm -hmm. close by. And so we may have it inflated in our minds, just like, you know, when you talk to a child and they don't want to get on an airplane because they think airplanes crash or, yeah. or I, I have students who, who are afraid that school shooters will appear. And I try yeah. to explain to them the probability of that compared to, you know, but they, it's just what they hear, what they hear, what they hear, what they hear. Yes. Um, on the other hand, maybe it's like, you know, Jesus said, Oh, you guys are like a bunch of, um, sepulchers you're all painted white on the outside and full of bones mm -hmm. and maybe we're just putting the those those decomposing bones in in the sunlight you know the best disinfectant 
maybe it's yeah. just a very painful season where we see inside so that we can you know yeah. get, get rid of the end. well and I, I didn't say this i think i might have yeah. mentioned this in the book but i mentioned it really carefully and and i would want to say here that if we're ever talking to people we have to do this carefully but here's the thinking of what you're saying chris here's the mm -hmm. real deal if you think of a moment where a Catholic priest was doing something wrong or some evangelical superstar was doing something wrong. So just picture that moment. Let's say it was 2.10 on a Wednesday afternoon. Well, at that very same moment, I don't know the number off the top of my head, so your listeners shouldn't trust me, but there's something like 2.7 billion Christians in the world, something like that. Yeah. So at that very moment, 2.10 on an afternoon where a minister is getting drunk or a priest is misbehaving. I can guarantee you that there are tens of millions of quiet Christians engaging in acts of goodness, kindness, charity, hospitality, and they get no credit. They don't show up in the news. They're not, there's no magazine stories written about them. You mm -hmm. know, social media doesn't scream about them. Like when the latest study comes out from a diocese or something, and, you know, everybody screams, you know, rightly screams about it for a while. So I would never say that in a way is to say, therefore, you shouldn't have your hurt feelings about the church. I don't mean to say that. I just mean to say there's a simultaneous truth. Mm -hmm. There's two like railroad tracks. There's two rails here. And so the one doesn't the one doesn't mean that the bad stuff doesn't happen. It just means even amongst Jesus's first friends, a full third of them had pretty big problems. Yeah. Right? Peter denies Jesus. Judas oh, yeah. betrays him. James and John want to call down fire from heaven on <laughs> cities who they think weren't welcoming enough to Jesus. I yeah. can just always hear Jesus saying, Oy vey, you guys, you can't be any more wrong about me than that. Yeah. So even Jesus's best friends were wrong about stuff. Um didn't behave in ways that we would think are exemplary. And there's just a deep mystery here. But I think, Chris, what we have to do, especially in the age we live in, is we can't just say, oh, this is a deep mystery. Or we can't just say, but wait a minute, the church does good stuff too. No, I think the burden of my book is to say, no, how do we actually get into the pain that these people are feeling? Yeah. Well, and, and then, yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, there's a second part of that is you had a parishioner named uh, Robert and he comes to you and says, look, my neighbor's a, he's, he goes to church. He calls himself a Christian. At the same time, he considers himself some kind of Christian nationalist who yeah. hates this group and that group and these foreigners yeah. and those people. Um, and he's taking that name. And I have neighbors on my street and dear friends whom I talk to who are professed atheists and they behave like Christians should. Yeah all yeah. the time all right. the time um one of the uh, shocking story i heard from my cousin is that our other cousin hasn't gone to the in poland mind you hasn't gone through the effort to baptize his children like mm. he just like he's like whatever you know and yeah. it's kind of a european material i don't even know why on earth you wouldn't just like what does it cost you to baptize a child even even if you're skeptical so there's a cultural crisis um, and maybe I'm blowing things out of proportion, but and I have a hard time explaining to my atheist friends, look, it's, you're, you're, you're a lovely person and you act in the spirit of Jesus all the time, maybe because you're just a good person, maybe because you live in a society that's been formed for 2000 years by these gospel yes. principles. 
Right. Um, and then I try to, I try to, I, I haven't done it effectively, and you really have done this effectively, is explain why the church is good for you. It's not that you have to identify, take on this label, check this mm. box. Is like you will be fed um, at this table. Yeah. Uh, your book really does that. So would you, would you help us through that problem? Well, I think when we see what you're talking about, and we all have friends like you're describing, Chris, who wouldn't say they're Christians, um, but really do live what we would all think of as kind of morally decent, maybe even better than decent, maybe even exemplary lives, but for whatever reason, you know, would say that they're agnostic or atheist or something. So I think there's a few things going on here. First of all, everybody is created in the image of God and therefore has some imprint of that nature of God that is truly good, you know, the, the true good um, is an aspect of all of us, whether even if somebody wants to say we're all fallen um, and all have original sin, okay, fine. But we also have the original intent of God somewhere in us uh, in terms of human beings. So I think partially it's maybe the answer is, has to do with what's sometimes called general revelation or general grace where people are not picking up on these um, moral, these good moral attitudes and good moral behaviors based on, you know, catechism or studying the Bible or something. They've picked it up, as you say, Chris, in different ways, maybe cultural, maybe family, maybe the influence of coaches and teachers or music teachers or something, and they pick it up. And so that's what theologians have often called general revelation or general grace. But the other thing I always think of is, just because someone says they don't believe in God, that doesn't like checkmate God's power to work in and through them. You know, <laughs> that'd be like me saying, I don't believe in your dad. Well, <laughs> you're, I'm, I'm quite sure your dad existed or yeah. exists. And, and my saying that I don't believe in your dad or your brother or sister or whatever, you know what I mean? It doesn't, it actually has no bearing on them. Uh, but we think somehow that our mere belief systems um, somehow have ultimate control over God or something. And I think um, that's just not the case. And we should, I think we should see morally upright, virtuous, um, benevolent, justice-seeking atheists or agnostics as a, a part of the the revelation of God, whether they know it or not, yeah. or, or whether they would give God any credit for it or not. Um, I think we can we can think of it that way. Yeah, no, and we'll know them by by the fruits and not by the whatever label yeah. um, they, they take on. So my favorite idea of yours is living in the kingdom of God and that mm. uh, eternity is not like just some really long time that happens after you're dead in a faraway yeah. disembodied place, yeah. but eternity is here and now. Yeah. Uh, what is living in the kingdom of God look like and how do we how do we do that right now? Yeah. And this, as you know, is, again, the burden of my book is it brings us solidly back to Jesus. I mean, it could be argued or just observed that Jesus didn't really talk about anything much other than the kingdom of God. I mean, most of the parables are about the kingdom of God. His first words in public in Matthew 4, Mark 1 are about the kingdom of God. Even John the Baptist, when he says, here's what Jesus is going to be all about, he says it's going to be all about the kingdom of God. Um all the parables practically about the kingdom of God. So you could just say, basically what Jesus did was he taught the kingdom. He manifested it in his way of being, and he demonstrated it in deeds of power. And then said, 
come follow me. And I will teach you how to derive your life from the kingdom and live it in the kingdom for the sake of others. So I, I think I said a minute ago, you know, kingdom just translates this word, basile is rule or reign. So the kingdom of God is simply the experience the expression or the extension of the will of a person, you know, this Trinitarian God, um, there are actions associated with him and, and this, they get expressed and this is the kingdom. It's the expression of God. It's sometimes said the kingdom of God is all the times and places in which what God wants done is done. This is why Jesus, when he says, um, here's how to pray. The first line is pray that kingdom come pray that, that God's, rule and reign, his will would be done perfectly here on earth as it is in heaven. And then he tells his disciples, you know, the great commission to go out and teach people this way that I've given to you. So the kingdom of God, um, we see coming through Jesus when he says things like, um, the son can only do what he sees the father doing, or the son says nothing except for what he hears the father saying. Or the son has not come to do his own will, but only the will of the father, et cetera. You know, just think of all those sayings of Jesus. Well, what's going on there? What's going on there, and, and this is right at the heart of my book, is we're seeing that to which Jesus was conscious. And I, I always say this jokingly, Chris, but I think some Christians aren't even sure Jesus was conscious hmm. or that he was in any way intelligent. Seriously, I, um, we tend to think of him as a source of blood to cover our sins and that's what was essential about him and of course it is unspeakably essential like right at the core of course but he also was really cognizant of what the father was doing in and through him you remember when he walks through the colonnade and there's all the lame people sitting there and he tells the one person pick up your mat and walk well why that one person because that's what he saw the father doing i mean jesus was conscious of this he was conscious that healing on the Sabbath was going to be a problem. He was conscious that the way he was responding to Herod or Pilate was going to make a difference. He was like deeply conscious that the father was doing something in and through him. Well, what we call that is the kingdom being expressed. It was God doing something through him, ruling and reigning through him. And then crucially, Jesus says, John 20, even as the father sent me, to express the kingdom. So I send you. Then he breathes on the first church and says, receive the Holy Spirit. So in the same way that Jesus said, I only do the things I see the father doing, the church now is meant to live in the kingdom by saying, we do and say, as the spirit is moving through us. And that's what I think, Chris, is so profound about the kingdom of God. It's like a way of explaining Christian spirituality that's like complete, you know, Mm -hmm. and holistic it's not but i have no problem with doctrine obviously but it's not mere doctrine it's not mere dogma um it's not mere right answer to a catechetical question it's like a life yeah well then if you say well what characterizes that life it's the kingdom of god alive in us and through us it's really magical i mean i could go on yeah please do, please do it's because for me you know if you had the faith of the mustard seed you could move a mountain yeah well you know as a kid, I would try. <laughs> I would try yeah. to move a mountain. Just like if I watched Star Wars, I'd try to lift objects with my mind. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I feel yeah. like you you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. And then suddenly you can. It's almost like um, 
uh, uh, Neo in the Matrix, right? He's he's mm-hmm. he suddenly like he can just see he can just see the writing all around him, and I feel like that that kind of you know cinematic metaphor. But I think we can live in the kingdom right now. It is here. It is here. It is here. The kingdom is at hand. Um, and you conversely, you warn against the different kinds of idolatries. If you are yeah. if you are thinking about money, you will see the world in terms of money. If you think about yeah. sex, you will see the you think about power. You know, yeah. there, there's the old joke about like anybody who's dishonest will assume everybody else is dishonest. That sort of yeah. thing. How yeah. how do we bust through that veil and live in the kingdom of God right now and reject all of these idols all around us? So shiny, so attractive and so useless. Yeah. I think right at the heart of that, Chris, is what do we desire? Yeah. And we we don't always uh, link desire to like practical Christian spirituality. You know, practical Christian spirituality might be Bible study or going to mass or, um, you know, doing what evangelicals would call morning devotions or something, you know. Um, but we don't tend to think what what place are my desires playing in this? So um, James K. Smith is an uh, is a, a guy I love and uh, appreciate, and his book um, on desire. He has a line in there that says, "You are what you love, hmm. and you may not love what you think you do." <laughs> and so, what I mean by that is, when people wonder, "Well, gosh, I I do go to mass every week," and um, you know, I do try to read my devotional most mornings when I can get up, but I just don't find that much change happening in my life. We've all known people like this. We've all had that experience sometimes. Well, often it's because we don't actually desire the kingdom of God to be at work in our life because it can be really inconvenient and it can be a little scary and it decenters us. Just think about how profound that is. When the kingdom is alive in our life, it decenters us. This is what Jesus means when he says you can't serve two masters. Or when he talks about the pearl of great price or the treasure buried in the field, those are parables about desire. Yeah. Like if you saw the kingdom, would you sell all your pearls to get it? Would you, using a different example, would you sell all your land to -hmm. get the land where the kingdom was? And so can you see how that's precisely about desire? Yeah. Or take the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, The main reason people wouldn't cross the street was the desire for safety. And they could not see that on the other side of the street was the kingdom of God. And that's where we're profoundly safe. One of my most cherished mentors was Dallas Willard. Mm -hmm. I don't know how well he'll be known to your audience, but he was a famous Christian spiritual formation kind of writer. And Dallas used to say, everything else in the world might shake, but the kingdom of God is never at risk. And you are always safe when you're alive in the kingdom of God. And so it has to do with like desiring that because then that gets it. Once we start really experiencing that, this is what I mean where it goes beyond just like understanding the Greek word basileia. When when it becomes an experienced reality, then you realize, oh, I am safe enough to cross the street. And... um, And maybe get cooties because this guy's dead. And if I touch a dead body or whatever, you know, we don't have time to get into um, exegeting the parable of the Good Samaritan. But, but, or Peter standing in that courtyard denying Jesus, well, what's going on there? Well, shocking to himself, 
literally shocking to himself was to discover, I desire safety more than the passion with which I told Jesus. Even if everybody else leaves you, Lord, I won't. I believe Peter meant that with his whole heart, only to discover a few hours later, oh, crud, I actually desire my personal safety more. So th this is the profundity of following Jesus, is that it gets to what's really real about us. But, what, but it's beautiful too, Chris. It's not just scary. I know what I said just now feels big and maybe even a little scary, but it's actually can be childlike and joyful. And you start discovering, wow, God is real. And I really am always safe in the kingdom of God. You know, think of Jesus in the boat with the boys and they get all upset during the storm. And he, he wakes up and says, oh, you little faith. Mm -hmm. Can't you see that even if you die, you're safe? Yeah. That's a joy. See what I'm saying? Like, I know that feels deep and that might feel like, wow, really profound Christian spirituality or something. I get that. But on the other hand, that's really childlike. Yeah. Like, hey, guys, you're all right. Yeah. You know, you're always safe in the kingdom of God. That That's the kind of intuitive joy that a two-year-old has when mom says, go out in the back and play. There's fences there. He never, you know, a normal child would never doubt his safety. Just go out and play. It's okay. You know, hey, it stopped raining. Go out and play. Yeah. Or, hey, Michael's out there. You know, your friend's out there. Go out and play. That's the kind of joyful, free, Christian spirituality that Jesus had in mind um, when he says, just follow me and I'll show you how to live your life in the kingdom of God. Yeah. Well, I, I two things occur to me as you're speaking now is one, one is that Peter learned a lot about himself in, in his failure. And yes. then that he picked as up, do we, right? As a, yes. No better teacher than failure, mm. but also that he was able to turn that into, you know, to go be the first um go be the rock yeah. on which the church is built yeah um, so so maybe that's why god works with broken tools and crooked timbers is because we I, I see how you're a flawed human being and i can be inspired by you and then i can inspire yes. my neighbors and they can say like well we know him really well and we know all all his flaws boy does i remember he did this and he did that and he said this and he did that and yet at the same time look he's actually doing something useful helpful loving and um and so mm -hmm. on. the second one is like we our worst enemy is our own words. I think that we mm. say these are the Christian principles and they might not be Christian principles. We've just assigned the label of Christianity to them. Like uh, uh, Robert's neighbor says, these are my ideas and they come from Christianity. And you call out all the, uh, you know, progressive Christians and the conservative Christians. And they think that these are, um, yeah, you know, they think that they're representing Jesus, but really they've just drawn Christian language to things that they already wanted to happen for for unrelated reasons the the fellow who wrote your foreword is esau macaulay yes yeah. leaders evoke jesus to cover principles derived from elsewhere yeah so would you what do you think what do you think of is it's are we our own worst enemies with our fancy talk and clever excuses well i think this gets back to your question about today's version of bad religion and i think it's absolutely true and heartbreaking i say in my book it is literally heartbreaking it's hard for me to think of anything in my long career, which is, you know, 46, 47 years. Honestly, Chris, it's hard for me to think of any more heartbreaking than the last handful of years to watch the Christian church be co-opted by politics on the right or politics on the left and literally used 
for partisan political reasons. These, these partisan political consultants and stuff, they're genius. And they know how to use and manipulate words. They know how to use and manipulate media. And so they make Christians think that, hey, this is Christian. And I'm not talking about just the right. I mean, Christian nationalism, I think, is a very scary thing. And, and the rise of things like dominionism or kinism, and sorry, your, your leaders can go, your, I mean, sorry, not your readers, your audience can, can go Google those words. But the rise of those kinds of things is really, really problematic. But so is co-opting religious kind of vibes and, and language on the left that is completely secular and has no room for God, but it co-ops, you know, our language. And so, yes, it's really a scary uh, time uh, to live. And, and this is why, as you know, in my book, I keep trying to guide people back to Jesus, his vision, his values, what he thought was important, what he thinks is going on. And the reason for that, Chris, is that it um, that's a transcendent place to stand, which critiques all of us. Roman Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants, Charismatics, Pentecostals, all of us ought to be allowing that Jesus life, that Jesus movement, the Jesus teachings to correct us. And there's no way somebody could be looking through that lens and think it's okay to hate your neighbor because they're whatever, they're a Democrat or they're gay, or they're a Republican, or they love Trump, and so I hate them. Um, and so you just can't, you can't be taking Jesus serious and be engaging in a form of Christianity that has its development in and through the lenses and impulses of partisan politics. That just cannot work, but it is alive and well today. And uh, there's maybe, therefore, not been a better time for us to just try to come to a fresh hearing of Jesus and fresh mm -hmm. seeing of Jesus. And as you know, that's what I try to do in my book is my heart aches for all the people who are hurt by the church and who are kind of giving up on, on religion. And I just want to say, well, what if we could get a fresh look at Jesus by his aims, his purposes, what he thought God was doing in and through him, that which that to which he was conscious, that which he thought was important. And as soon as we, as soon as we say things like, holy cow, Chris, I think Jesus really meant this stuff about love. Mm. So then I'm not allowed to hate Trump lovers. It's, it's like the furthest, it would be the furthest thing from my mind. Yeah. Right. As soon as you see that, Absolutely. oh no, love is core, then then that, that applies to everybody and it banishes hate yeah. from everybody. Or I can't hate the left, you know, if you're if you're a right-leaning person. We, we can't hate the left. We can't hate immigrants. We can't hate sexual minorities. We can't hate anybody. It doesn't mean we have to give up on values. I have conservative, traditional um, kind of values about all this stuff, but that can't be a reason for hating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. And uh, one of the funniest parts uh, in the book is where you imagine, well, could Jesus ever start to compromise with the political authorities at the time? <laughs> yeah. and, it's, and it's not that he would find them intolerable or anything. He just wouldn't be he would have no interest in like figuring out what he and Herod 
or <laughs> had in common. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I'm glad you picked up on the humor because yeah. that, that's the way it felt to me when I was writing that paragraph was I was kind of seeing Chris that, you know, Jesus, Jesus, let's just say it's one of those moments where Jesus says, well, the son only does what he sees his father doing. Well, yeah. but maybe I can negotiate that with you, Mr. Herodian yeah. or Mr. Mr. Zealot who wants to kill the Romans. Okay. Yeah. I know. I just said that, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. I'm telling you, you can't even hate. Yeah. But okay, Mr. Zealot, if you want to talk, we can maybe compromise on that. I mean, it's ludicrous. It's sort of funny yeah. and ludicrous at the same time that Jesus would compromise with the hateful instinct of a zealot or the political instinct of a Herodian or the escapist um, view of someone in the Qumran sect. No, he would have precisely loved them right where they were even in their religious error, even in the current state of their heart or their will, he would have loved them right where they are on their terms. He just would have never compromised with them. Yeah. No, that's so beautiful. He just has no, he has no interest in, in yes. identity politics he, of any kind. Yeah. He's so attuned to his father. Yeah. That's yeah. what comes out all the time that no, I don't, I'm actually not attuned to what's happening in Rome or what Herod is saying or Pilate or, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the local, you know, leader, religious leader of some stripe. Yeah, he would have, how do I want to say this? There was a brilliance, a magic, uh, something stunning about Jesus where he knew precisely who he was in the father. He knew precisely what the father was doing through him. And that didn't make him a jerk or a jackass or, you know, like a narcissistic kind of person. Actually, he it allowed him to be humble and grounded and loving and present to people, but always as he is. Mm -hmm. And then invited people to come follow me. And that's the Jesus I'm trying to present in this book. So that not just people who are hurt and burned out by the church, but all of us, myself included, could look at that Jesus and go, man, he's the greatest, stunning, amazing, nothing and no one compares. And if he says the kingdom of God's what's up, then I want to be in the kingdom of God. Because yeah. if Jesus says this is what's up, then that's what's up for me. Yeah. And so I, my job is to love the person who's most different from me, mm -hmm. the one who is ritually unclean, the one who's... Yeah. Um, uh, you know, whatever the equivalent is of a centurion occupying my country, yeah. whatever yeah. is the equivalent of a leper, whatever is the equivalent of. Yes, uh, um, that's right. So I, okay, I, I got that. What else, what else should I be doing? You know, so to, should I be reading the gospel? Should I be taking that quiet mm. hour in the morning? What are, what, what kind of things will get me, you know, will show me the, 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 the fissure through the curtain into the kingdom right yeah. here today. What do you think? Um, yeah, that's a really great practical question, Chris. And the, the one thing you said, I think really is true that for a lot of us, it wouldn't harm us to just say, okay, for the next six months, I'm just going to soak myself in the gospels and just try to rediscover the person and work of Jesus and like the way he was and, and, and how he explained himself. Why did he do miracles? You know, like he says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then you can know the kingdom of God is upon you. So he often explains what he's doing and why he's doing it. So uh, that's actually a really good thought, Chris, is that all of us, you know, um, I remember the time when the message first came out, just the gospels. Um, you, would you and your audience know the message Bible? 
Is that uh, Eugene? Um... Yeah, Eugene Peterson. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So it's it's kind of a warm human paraphrase. Yeah. And when it first came out, I had to go on a long trip to like Australia or New Zealand or something, and so I took it with me. And I thought I'm just gonna. It was just the Gospels at the time. Yeah. And I thought, well, this will just kind of be a fresh way to immerse immerse myself in the Gospels. So I really would recommend that. And you might want to do it in a fresh translation. You know, like pick up a, a different translation of some sort. Uh, you know, a good translation. So yes, I really like that. But apart from that, Chris, I think that this is really kind of a practiced daily human thing. And so again, my mentor, uh, Dallas Willard would often say, well, just try to do the next right thing mm-hmm. and see how you feel about it. So like, if you're tempted to lust, well, just don't do it and see how you feel about it. Or if you do do it, how do you feel about it? Did, did you feel closer to God, further from God? Did you feel like you were loving your neighbor when you were using her for your viewing pleasure? Or do you feel like you're in a line with what it means to be a servant of God and serving her or whatever? You can just go on and on and on. So a lot of this is really practiced. And there is tons of great uh, Roman Catholic uh, um, thinking about practicing the presence of God. It's some of the best that's out there. Um, and so a part of it is a practice daily reality where we really are just practicing following Jesus. Just, okay, like often, almost every day, Chris, I'll just pray, okay, Lord, me and you, come on, let's go do our work together. Or before I got on this um, podcast, frankly, I, I'll often touch my lips, my heart, my head and say, now, Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, the thoughts of my mind, may they be, um, really uh, appropriate or i'll pray lord in this podcast you know make me a gracious generous generous um, generative person so i literally go through my day trying to be present to the moment present to god present to the people in my lives constantly asking the spirit to fill me constantly asking the spirit to give me gifts um constantly asking that i could be to the good of others and and just so saying Sorry. So do you see what I'm saying? That's a practiced reality. Steeping ourselves in the gospels is kind of imaginative and probably evocative. It'll help us fall in love with Jesus. But if we fall in love with Jesus, if we come to have some understanding of him, that still has to be translated in and through our life. And that's a practiced reality. And one of the great practices of Christian spirituality for 2000 years is practicing the presence of God in our actual life today as we know it. And my life today just happened to have the blessing of being on your podcast. So I tried to make myself present to it. And I just go through my day that way. Yeah, well, it certainly has been a a blessing for me personally and for thousands of people who are listening to us all over the world. People I've, you know, so many people we we touch, we don't even know. So um, we've been talking for an hour. What, What else should we say? What am I forgetting to ask you about that you'd like to mention? Nothing. I thank you, Chris. I really sincerely appreciate when, you know, when people write books, they, they're always genuinely grateful when somebody takes it serious and engages with it. And I'm, I'm sincerely grateful to, uh, for you've trusted me to be with your audience today and that we got to talk about this. I think we've said it that um, what we're trying to do in this book and what we're trying to do in our work together is uh, gain a fresh hearing for Jesus, for those who are stuck, hurt, burned out. Um, man, I would just, I could die a happy camper if if a few people uh, got a fresh view of Jesus. Amen. 
Amen. Well, would you close uh, with a blessing or a prayer for our listeners? In yes. World? And may the Lord bless you. May he cause you to prosper richly in every good spiritual gift there is in Christ Jesus. And may the Lord keep you. May he guard you, protect you, and watch over you and all whom you love. And may the Lord's countenance be upon you this today, his face turned towards you, such that you would see in Jesus how very much he loves you, how he accepts you right where you are and invites you to follow him. And may the Lord be gracious unto you. As you walk with him, may you know his goodness, his loving kindness, and his everlasting love towards you. And may the Lord grant you each one peace. May you be at rest and centered in Christ Jesus, who is our Lord, and through whom we ask all these things. Amen. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you, and hail, hail the Word made flesh, the babe, the Son of Mary. Chris Udinitz and Bishop Todd Hunter recorded this conversation, episode 62, on Thursday, July 13, 2023. It was the feast day of St. Henry, who around the year 1000 was Duke of Bavaria, later King of Germany, later Holy Roman Emperor. He was decisive and merciful, keeping order but showing clemency to his enemies. He was a tremendous patron of monasteries and a great benefactor of the poor. His wife, Kunigunde, was just as pious and devoted to God's people, and they were both canonized as saints. Our music is from Josh and Margot of the Great Space Coaster Band. Their website is www.gscoasterband.com, and our logo, the image of the dog, is from a window at Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain, and is taken with the kind permission of the Dominican Friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, www.english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinitz, and I thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and